Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Many people here in Georgia and, of course, across the country woke up this morning to the blockbuster story first reported by Politico, uh, which says that a leaked draft of a ruling in the uh, Mississippi Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization case uh, has been decided by the justices that they have decided, the majority has decided, to outlaw row entirely. It's uh, an enormous, we, first of all, um, there are a lot of, often many drafts of Supreme Court decisions, rulings that are passed around among the justices, uh, tweaked in many ways. There are times when justices certainly can change their minds and vote a different way. But right now, uh, Politico, the document Politico has, which they uh, have every reason to believe is authentic, and so do the other news organizations that have looked at it, uh, says that a 5-4 decision, at least 5-4, uh, to overturn Roe is likely. Uh, uh, Justice Alito wrote the decision. He is Among the things he said are, are, is this. Um, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reason, reasoning was exceptionally weak, the decision has had damaging consequences, and far from bringing about a national set settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey, and he also talks about the fact that Casey is, should be overturned, have inflamed debate and deepened division. And then the conclusion of the Alito uh, decision says, the Constitution does not prohibit the citizens of each state from regulating or prohibiting abortion. Roe and Casey arrogated that authority. We now overrule those decisions and return that authority to the people and their elected representatives. So a lot to unpack here in terms of the culture wars, in terms of the impact this could have on elections in Georgia and elsewhere. Uh, let's get right to that. Um, I'm really happy that Tamar Hallerman, uh, my partner on the Tuesday show, is with us. She, of course, is a senior reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And a little later in the show, we're going to talk about the reporting you've been doing on the Fonnie Willis impaneling of the special grand jury to look into potential criminal behavior by Donald Trump uh, tomorrow. But I'm very happy you're with us this morning. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having mm -hmm. me, Bill. Um, we are also joined uh, uh, today uh, by Stephen Fowler, who, uh, of course, is uh, GPB's um, political reporter. Stephen, uh, you woke up to that news, or you may have seen it last night. Startling, and given that you're going to be spending a lot of time covering elections uh, for our website, for radio, and for Battleground Ballot Box, your podcast, I, I suggest you're going to be talking about this for a long time to come. Absolutely. I mean, Georgia's elections in the midterms this November were already going to be uh, nonstop political action, but this just ramps it up to a whole new level. Tia Mitchell is with us. She's the Washington reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hi, Tia. How are you today? I'm doing great. Good morning. 
Thanks for being here. And Emma Hurt, uh, Axios Atlanta reporter who's in Washington, where Tia is right now, um, is with us as well. And uh, Emma, let me say, you you said you went over uh, to uh, the Supreme Court this morning to see what the uh, situation looked like. There were a lot of demonstrators there last night until early hours this morning. Uh, this morning, it was a little different scene, you said. It was. It was um, not many protesters, but a lot of journalists who appeared to be settling in for the long haul today, doing live shots and uh, taking photos of of the backdrop. And, you know, I'll go check back in, as Tia probably will, too, and see if the protesters return after their late night. But I, like many other journalists this morning, woke up and rewrote my uh, the newsletter this morning with this news because it is seismic, as you say. It's it's extraordinary. And one of the things you've done in Axios Atlanta this morning is to talk about some of the impacts this could have right here in Georgia. And we're going to get to that uh, in our conversation today. But tomorrow, let's start with the big news itself. Um, first of all, a leak like this is, uh, if not completely unprecedented, historic. Uh, I don't think we've ever seen a decision uh, with the consequences that this one potentially has uh, that has leaked uh, well before the time it was supposed to officially uh, be signed off on by the justices. Yeah, leaks from the Supreme Court are so, so rare, unlike Capitol Hill, unlike the White House, especially <laughs> under Donald Trump. They do a great job of keeping their, their decisions under lock and key. Um, so it's not entirely unprecedented. Um, there was a great thread that Emma uh, shared with the group from uh, from Jonathan Peters, who's a media law professor at UGA, that kind of details some of the times throughout history where this has happened. But really, it's something that happens only once a decade or once every 20 or 30 years, and rarely do we see the actual text of a draft document, the exact language being laid out by Justice Alito, kind of showing his thinking. And obviously this can change, but it's also interesting to kind of game out who might have leaked this and why. Um, would it be a more liberal member of the court who is really upset uh, by, by this impending ruling? Could it be a conservative who's worried that one of those uh, affirmative votes was starting to waver? Um, we may never know the answer to that, but it's certainly is a, a really interesting thought exercise. Um, uh, Atia, uh, this ruling, if it in fact uh, uh, continues to be uh, uh, what the, the court releases probably later in June, um, does tell us about the fact that elections have consequences. Um, the uh, majority in this case would be, uh, according to uh, Politico and others who have now reported on this, uh, it was Alito, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, who were, are voting in the majority to overturn uh, Roe, while Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan are in the minority. John Roberts is still, um, uh, it's unclear where he stands on this, but the point is you've got three Trump-appointed justices coming together in the majority if that's how this goes down when it's final. Yeah, it shows that elections have consequences, not just when it comes to the consequences of, you know, President Trump being able to appoint three very conservative justices, which we need to remember this was part of the plan. Conservative Republicans were building to this. This was part of the reason why, you know, a subset of 
moderate, right-leaning voters, particularly white women, were willing to support President Trump in 2016, despite some of his controversies that people were maybe more uncomfortable with. They felt that Trump gave them uh, their best chance at overturning Roe v. Wade. So this is a consequence of that 2016 election, but it's also a consequence of your state elections, because if this ruling plays out, and at this point there is no indication that this is not what is going to happen, Every state will get to decide if abortion is legal and to what extent. So every General Assembly, those elections have consequences now. Every governor's office that has the power to sign bills into law or veto them, those elections have consequences now. So um, let's talk about that here in Georgia for a moment, Emma. Um, We we know that Georgia has had the six-week abortion ban uh, in suspended animation awaiting court rulings. Um, It's it's one of the strictest abortion laws in the country, that after six weeks you cannot legally get an abortion. Uh, Now, if this ruling in fact plays out, uh, they can. They, we expect that Georgia will enact that six-week law, and perhaps could go a step further and outlaw abortion entirely in 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 the legislative session next year. Right? Yeah, and I mean, covering that uh, law that was passed in 2019, this was Roe v. Wade was hanging over it all, right? In in one respect, because. Um, the argument was this could be one of the cases that would make it up to the Supreme Court challenging this law. And also, you know, rumblings that Republicans who were maybe more moderate on this issue decided to vote for it. The awareness that Roe v. Wade would be a guardrail on it actually having an effect on on Georgians. So here we are uh, three years later and um, and it's come to pass because it has been kind of stuck and it has sort of dropped off, you know, the news cycle radar in this interim. And now it comes roaring back and with it comes the emotion that was, I mean, I, you know, all of my fellow panelists can speak to this too. But for me, that was the most emotional thing to cover in, in politics, the protests and the speeches from the floor. Um, you know, this really strikes close to home for people in both on both sides of the issue. And so we're right back in the in the middle of it. Stephen. Yeah, I, I mean, this is, you know, there are several different uh, ways this could play out. But I mean, Georgia does have a law on the books. So this be, well, it's, uh, being uh, blocked by the courts that's stricter than the one that the Supreme Court is currently considering. And uh, like Emma said, I mean, the emotional uh, protest speeches from the floors, people getting their microphones cut. I mean, Georgia is a pretty polarized state right now on a lot of different issues. But the subject of abortion and abortion access in Georgia is more powerful than, I mean, even talk about the 2020 election. So putting this into the lap of Georgia voters and in front of them months before this midterm election where we'll decide the governor who signs laws, the attorney general who uh, sues over laws and defends over laws, as well as every member of the state legislature, really adds a whole new dynamic to the conversations. And especially because there's been recent polling done by the AJC that finds a majority of voters in Georgia 
do not want to see Roe v. Wade overturned. Right. Um, let's let's amplify something tomorrow that Stephen said and put it in the context just to explain this to our listeners. So the actual Mississippi case, um, Dobbs v. Jackson, uh, uh, Women's Health, uh, that is based on, <clears throat> excuse me, Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban. So that's why Stephen says we have an even stricter law here in Georgia that's waiting to be adjudicated. But when Mississippi sent that case to the Supreme Court, they added an addendum. They said, we think you should use this case to completely overturn Roe, not to simply uh, rule on our 15-week ban, which is why the court is now in this posture where they can move forward uh, with the ban. And Georgia's heartbeat law has been kind of waiting. Uh, you know, it, it's been stuck in the courts. It's been stayed. And people were waiting for the Supreme Court to weigh in. So this certainly, uh, I think, for a lot of abortion foes, gives them kind of the green light to be able to move forward. And so I think a lot of judges are, are kind of waiting to see, we're waiting to see what the Supreme Court would do. So certainly, I think it's fair to assume that Georgia's heartbeat law will be able to, to go into effect. I think you're also going to see a lot of states suddenly want to pass trigger laws that would completely outlaw abortion um, the second that the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. And there is, you know, there's been talk in Georgia about wanting to do that as well. I know that had been on the table in previous sessions. I wonder if there's the potential for a special session uh, before the November elections where legislators will be called back to, to do just that. Well, now that's an interesting question, Stephen. Um, we already are getting responses from Georgia Democrats, not surprisingly, who are saying uh, this this ruling, if it holds, will absolutely elect Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock. Uh, that, you know, there's this combination of anger over the uh, ruling, uh, but also this sense that hey, this is an opportunity for us to turn the momentum of this election. Uh, in our direction. So it's interesting to think that a special session might come into play in which Republicans could go even further. And, uh, and, and who knows what the consequences of that would be with the general electorate. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you the, the quickest way to find out just how unpopular a decision might be would be to call a special session. Um, you know, Governor Kemp can point to Georgia's law which not only would be the six-week ban, but it also includes language around uh, so-called fetal personhood, which would give certain economic and legal rights to the mother and the uh, clump of cells that is present at six weeks. And uh, there's also been other talks installed in the legislative session this year about more abortion restrictions. And so if you really want to find out just how Georgians feel about mm -hmm new restrictions or additional restrictions, putting a legislative session in the summer right before voters head to the poll would make sure that this is front and center for Republicans and Democrats heading into November. Tia? Yeah, and I think we should also keep in mind that this could go beyond abortion. Um, this could go to, you know, gay marriage. This could go to um, whether the state... Uh, make specific laws targeting transgender men and women. We should talk about um, religious and other civil liberties. You know, if the Supreme Court indicates that whatever 
legal precedent that exists at the Supreme Court, such as the landmark Supreme Court decision that upheld the right for gay people to marry, if they're willing to overturn Roe v. Wade, are they willing to overturn other existing legal precedents and put those decisions back at the state, um, where states, again, could pass laws um, that, that limit rights and freedoms already mentioned? Hey, Emma, that's a really good uh, avenue to pursue for a couple minutes here. Uh, Alito, very specifically, for, of, of course, Roe was based on the, uh, the belief that the Constitution guarantees privacy. Now, there's nothing explicit that guarantees privacy in the United States Constitution, but there are lots of different sections of that document, amendments and other sections, which suggest a right for Americans to have privacy. And, and when Tia talks about not just Roe, but talks about uh, same-sex marriage uh, and contraception, those are also based on the right to privacy. Now, let me add one more thing. Alito, in this first draft that we've seen, says something very specific about that. He says, we emphasize that our decision concerns the constitutional right to abortion and no other right. Nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. But opponents of this are saying, wait a minute, of course those things all are now vulnerable. Right. And, you know, I think because of the makeup of the court, this uh, outcome is not surprising to everyone. But just to see it at this moment, nobody was prepared for it right this moment. And so the cascade of, of what ifs from here is flowing really fast and furious. And, and you're right that um, the, the jump, you can jump very quickly from one to the other when you think about Supreme Court precedent and, and the status quo if something similar to this decision moves forward. And I will say the other thing about this leak that's, that I've been thinking about is if it changes in any way, does it delegitimize what the court actually ends up deciding? If someone changes their vote, if, if the argument changes in any way, you know, what implications will that have on, on the Supreme Court's decisions in the future? Um, Tamar, let's, yeah, that's that I'd like to pursue as well, but I want to, I want to stick with this privacy matter for just another minute because, um, Georgia had an important case in, in terms of, uh, privacy. It was, uh, Bowers v. Hardwick, uh, when Michael Bowers was attorney general, he went all the way to the Supreme Court to, uh, defend a Georgia law, which prevented sodomy, gay sex. Um, and, uh, the court overturned uh, the, uh, the the Georgia statute. It was a victory for the ability of same-sex couples to to in factual, in, engage in sex in in, in private. Um, but there are those who think again, these are the kinds of things that could be uh, open to challenge at this point now. Yeah, and Tia mentioned kind of more broadly what striking down or kind of creating new precedent could lead to. I think looking at it slightly more narrowly, I know that there's a lot of advocates for women's rights who this morning are very worried about what this could mean to access to contraceptives, to IVF, to mm -hmm. things kind of impacting the way that women can kind of control their own reproductive freedoms. And so I think in the more immediate term, people are thinking, what does this mean? Could state legislatures in turn kind of turn around and start regulating that stuff? as well. S Stephen? Well, I mean, I, I saw somebody say 
uh, online that was that asked the question, you know, what if the Supreme Court overturned decisions like D.C. versus Heller, which deals with the Second Amendment, or uh, Citizens United, which dealt which deals with uh, campaign finance and fundraising and speech? And like, what if the Supreme Court overturned a decision that had become common practice for issues that conservatives cared about? And it, it's it's hard to picture what that would look like. But it, it does. I mean, I think like Tamar said that, you know, the way the opinion is written, the draft opinion is written, and the way conversations have developed around Roe and access to contraceptives and reproductive health care is that any decision that the court would make and this decision that the court seems poised to make doesn't quite shut that door for people to say, well, we're only specifically talking about abortion. In this case, we're not talking about gay marriage. We're not talking about contraception. We're not talking about things like that. So it really is, uh, it just really is kind of an unprecedented draft decision that goes far beyond simply access to abortion in America. Emma? And then the other thing that I was, you know, eyes turned to now are one of our other branches of government, the legislative branch and what might happen there, you know, could this be an issue that the filibuster is, you know, abolished for? That's a question that will be asked of probably every member of Congress now, today, and the days to come. It's already being asked. There are there are the Democrats are already under some pressure from people who have watched this ruling and said now is the time the Senate must Democrats must eliminate the filibuster so the Democrats can pass a law that would protect the right to abortion uh, for women across the country. Tamar? Yeah, and I wonder if we're going to get to, you know, if, if this is kind of the beginning of kind of this pendulum effect where we could see it in Congress, we could see it in different state houses around the country, depending on which party is in charge. You know, if Democrats are in charge, they're going to re-legalize abortions. If Republicans are in charge, they're going to limit, if not completely curtail access. Could it be every two or four years you see the pendulum swing back and forth? Tia? Yeah. And I also, I think we should um, state kind of plainly here, abortion rights it's pretty popular, even among conservatives. I mean, well, I thought either even among Republicans, there's a slight majority. Of course, it's far more popular among Democrats and independents. But uh, there is risk here politically if you push too far on abortion and reproductive rights, um, because we know this is something that even conservative women who may publicly not speak out for abortion rights. We know that one in four women have had an abortion. Um, we know that contraception is widely used, even if, you know, conservative women don't talk about it as publicly. So I think that's something to keep in mind that um, politically it's now, again, the Supreme Court, which isn't, you know, they're in a lifetime appointment. Technically, they're supposed to be above politics. There's much less pressure. It's different for an elected official who politically would have to, um, you know, face an electorate if they push in a direction on abortion and reproductive rights that puts them out of step with the people who put them in office. So there is some calculus that needs to happen here, even among Republicans, on how far 
they can and will go without alienating women voters. I think I'm glad you said that, because, Stephen, here's another line from the Alito draft. Um, it, 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 he says, uh, uh, here's what uh, Politico says, and then I'll quote from him. Alito's draft opinion rejects the idea that abortion bans reflect the subjugation of women in American society. And here's the direct quote from the draft. Women are not without electoral or political power. The percentage of women, Alito writes, who register to vote and cast ballots is consistently higher than the percentage of men who do. I'm not sure that that line uh, mollifies the, so many women out there who are really furious about this apparent ruling. Well, I, I, think if, I think if that line is the case, I think there are plenty of candidates and groups that we've seen so far that say, uh, you're about to find out. Um, you know, it was a very big mobilizing factor in Georgia in 2019 that, you know, pushed for a new crop of candidates that advocated for reproductive rights on the Democratic Party. It advocated, it activated a number of women that voted on for Democrats and Republicans to speak out in opposition to this. And I think, you know, the that decision and the way it's being framed now Granted, you know, Supreme Court watchers say that this obviously this is a draft and that uh, Alito is more of a firebrand in his writing than maybe a Justice Kavanaugh or a Justice Amy Coney Barrett would be. And so the final language might end up being softened a bit. But I think if you're wanting to provoke people, that's what this opinion is doing. And I, you know, it, it is something I have seen just in the 12 or so hours since this has been out. People in my own circles and online that tend to be more conservative, speaking out in opposition to this bill, uh, women in particular, speaking out in opposition to this draft ruling, excuse me. And I, I think it's something that polling shows, like Tia said, that this is something that is widely popular to keep Roe versus Wade. And I think you have the risk of this unelected branch of government, you know, cascading on down and dramatically affecting races by using inflammatory language to describe something that many people view as an essential part of their life and health care. Yeah, of course, we should point out that we're not likely to see any impact of this. I've, I've read a couple articles saying, gee, on the, on the eve of the Georgia primary elections, this uh, draft ruling is released. Well, we really don't see, I don't think, tomorrow, unless I'm I'm missing something, much impact on the primary elections. Republicans are going to turn out in Republican contests, some Democrats in Democratic contests, although they don't have the big uh, races on the ballot this time. It's the general elections where this is really going to come into play in November. For sure. And this is a game changer for Democrats, especially leading into November. Um, in general, midterms historically terrible for the party in power. Um, Democrats, I know, have been struggling when it comes to talking about issues like inflation, when it comes to Joe Biden's low approval numbers. This gives them an issue to rally around and talk about an issue that gets Democrats kind of roaring out of bed. So so this is a huge moment for them. It, it could have an impact on the primaries as well, although a lesser one. I think it um, provides more power to kind of the, the advocates really on both polls, right? The, the most extreme anti-abortion people, the most extreme mm. kind of pro-choice people. And so I think you could see that have an effect there, but maybe lesser. Tia, the last word just, before we get to a break. 
the president just put out a statement, and it speaks exactly to the point you just made, um, Bill. And he basically says if the court does overturn Roe, because he, of course, isn't privy to the Supreme Court's decisions or deliberations, but he says if it's true, if the court does overturn Roe, quote, it will fall on our nation's elected officials at all levels of government to protect a woman's right to choose, and it will fall on voters to elect pro-choice officials this November. Well, thank you for sharing that with us, uh, Tia. All right, let's do this. Um, let's get to our break. we got a few more stories I really want to talk about. But I want to take up one more element of this apparent uh, ruling of the Supreme Court when we come back in just a moment. GPB political reporter Stephen Fowler Axios Atlanta reporter Emma Hurt and the AJC's uh, Tia Mitchell and Tamar Hallerman join us for uh, today's show. Just one more element of this uh, Supreme Court story, um, Tamar. Um, We've watched trust and confidence in institutions just crumble around us in in the last within the last decade, basically. Um, And and this and we've already seen uh, the court. Uh, uh, being viewed as far more polarized and political, politicized than ever before. Um, and this is just going to take us one more step down the road, it seems to me. The fact that we're even debating what the court is possibly going to rule two months from now injects politics in this court ruling like no other case I can think of. And I mean, we're talking about an issue that's perhaps the most polarizing in American politics. So that Mm -hmm. certainly doesn't help either. And as Tia mentioned, you're going to you're going to strike down this precedent. What's next? People can't help but wonder um, what else might come behind it. And so, uh, you know, I I know that Justice Alito in this uh, supposed draft opinion is talking uh, about how uh, you know, at the time when Roe versus Wade, uh, that decision came down, you know, it, it didn't help settle the matter of abortion in, ama- in American politics. This certainly isn't going to help either. Emma? You know, I I was a history major, so sometimes I pull this out, these kinds of perspective out. But, you know, our founding fathers designed three branches of government. And so as the president's statement alludes, like, uh, the, the fight for abortion rights, now uh, the pendulum swings to another branch. And, and I think, you know, speaking of institutions, uh, there's been talk about oh, the decorum of the Supreme Court and how unprecedented it is to leak the decision. And some people are focusing more on the leak than the content of the leak itself. But I think it does show there's probably a big generational divide uh, between the, uh, you know, younger generation that has different newer thoughts about politics and norms and things and these sort of older storied, uh, you know, uh, institutions. I mean, Samuel Alito is 72 years old. I guarantee you he didn't leak out his opinion, but it's probable that maybe some of the clerks that work in the Supreme Court that are in their 20s, 30s or 40s and have different views about how the court could and should be used probably contributed to this draft opinion being leaked. And so I think uh, abortion is at the forefront, but we're also seeing it with uh, voting rights and democracy and other issues that sort of the generational divide of how American institutions have worked and should work in the future are really playing out in real time. And I would just Um, like to... 
Go ahead, Tia. I, thank you. Um, I would just like to point out that, like, let's not pretend like this leak is the first time the, the Supreme Court has been politicized or like some some earth-shaking reality that the Supreme Court is politicized. You know, Amy Coney Barrett was pushed through in a very political confirmation process. You know, Mitch McConnell blocked President Obama from filling a vacancy on the Supreme Court. That was political. The fact that, you know, the three conservative justices that were nominated by President Trump all kind of dodge the question of whether they would vote to overturn Roe v. Wade only to now all indications look like they're voting to overturn Roe v. Wade. That was political. So, you know, the court has been politicized. It didn't start with leaking this document. So I think well, the, the yeah. and I understand the document leak is unprecedented. So this is a new this is a new turn on how the court has been politicized. But we can't pretend that the court itself has not already been politicized. Well, we we could go back to the year 2000, the Supreme Court decision in the presidential election, uh, uh, Gore v. Bush. Um, one last thing that I wanted to point out to everybody out there before we move on. If you're going to follow this story closely and you're on Twitter, I would really recommend you follow SCOTUS blog. SCOTUS blog is a terrific uh, a news organization that that follows the Supreme Court with great great uh, intensity, and and I want to just mention one tweet that they put up this morning. It's impossible to overstate the earthquake this will cause inside the court in terms of the destruction of trust among the justices and staff. This leak is the gravest, most unforgivable sin. So we will watch how this plays out. I can't even imagine the pressure the justices are going to be under to either maintain this draft as the final version or to change things. And we will, of course, follow it on this show, as will every news organization in the country moving forward. All right, um, let's move on. Uh, Tamara, another big story uh, that you've been following very closely, and that's the impaneling now of the special grand jury that Fonnie Willis has called to investigate whether Donald Trump uh, is guilty or committed any criminal wrongdoing in interfering with Georgia's election. Tell us what's happening. They they got the jury paneled, impaneled very quickly yesterday, yes? Yeah, it took only about two hours for uh, Fulton Superior uh, Court Judge McBurney to announce the 23 Fulton County residents who are going to be serving on this special grand jury for up to a year. We thought it could have taken two days, so it moved very quickly. And now this entire process is going to move behind closed doors. Uh, These 23 special grand jurors are going to hear from Prosecutor Willis, uh, DA Willis, and her prosecutors about kind of what they've been able to dig up over the last 15 months in this investigation and what they are hoping to get through subpoenas for documents and testimony. Uh, DA Willis told me recently that more than 30 people have refused to testify without a subpoena. That includes Brad Raffensperger, the the star witness, the Republican Secretary of State. And so certainly this is going to be something kind of quietly operating in the background for the next few months up to a year. Um, uh, Stephen, uh, uh, this is a story that obviously we're all following very closely. And in fact, there are those who say that this is the last chance that the people who want Donald Trump held accountable in one way or another for wrongdoings, this may be the final 
uh, t- chance uh, to do that, at least until something new pops up down the road, Stephen. Right. Well, and even then, they might want to wait until pigs take flight. Um, it, it's going to be an incredibly <laughs> high bar to prove that the president of the United States at the time broke law in doing this. I mean, it's going to be uh, a very difficult road, even though there's so much evidence that's out there in the open. I mean, we have the unprecedented recording of the call with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. We have numerous uh, sham legislative hearings where Rudy Giuliani came and spread false things. Like, there's so much out there, but it's still going to be very difficult to convince somebody that it meets the legal threshold of wrongdoing. But it is, there are, there are a lot of people that have put a lot of hopes on Fonnie Willis. And I think there's a lot of people that will be judging Fonnie Willis based on how this court case plays out and how, you know, if there's going to be prosecution or charges or things like that. And so, you know, we've seen other investigations like currently happening in New York that are wrapping up without any charges against former President Trump. And Georgia will probably be the same. But I think all of that to say, even if there are no charges and things, I don't think it will be, uh, there won't be a lack of accountability for Trump. And I think what we're seeing, the more things that come out in Georgia and in New York and in D.C. and other things like that, uh, as well as the primary elections with you know, candidates like Brad Raffensperger seeking re-election, I think there will be other ways that even uh, even though there won't necessarily be charges, I think this investigation into Donald Trump will end up hurting him and damaging his political future. Uh, we should point out, Emma, an important aspect of this special grand jury. Um, they are going to make a recommendation. They themselves cannot bring a true bill in this case. They can recommend what action they believe after hearing from witnesses and examining evidence what they believe the DA ought to do. But in the long run, it will be up to her uh, to decide on uh, whether the charges should be brought or not. And, Emma, what I wanted to ask you about is we shouldn't just talk about Donald Trump in terms of this grand jury. David Schaefer, the chairman of the Republican Party, uh, brought together a fake a uh, group of electors, Trump electors at the state capitol, submitted those names to the Library of Congress, the official holding place for slates of electors. And, uh, and he could be uh, a subject of this. In- he is a subject of this investigation. Uh, and so is Lindsey Graham for phone calls that he made to the secretary of state. So this is beyond just Donald Trump, Emma. It is. It is. Uh, Trump is in the headline, but, you know, it's for Trump and others, and that others could include a lot of people and a lot of Georgians. Um, I think to the point about whether this affects Trump's popularity, though, you know, she's an Atlanta Democratic district attorney. Does this sway any Republican voters' opinion? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, cynically, I might say not, but um, but we will certainly see, and it is uh, again, another example of uh, the national eyes turning to Georgia. I mean, it feels kind of like the runoff. Like here we are, the last, the last moment, the last uh, gauntlet here um, uh, for Trump and, and charges yeah. against him. Yeah, Tia, I don't expect that that this is going to sway many Republicans uh, to suddenly turn on Donald Trump. But 
in fact, what it can do is inject politics, in, especially the general election cycle, because T- Fannie Willis isn't going to start calling witnesses until uh, June 1st. Um, down the road, uh, we're going to see her under intense pressure being accused of uh, doing the bidding of Democrats. Uh, that, that's going to generate an entire uh, new war. And it's already we've already seen it start. Yeah, I mean, again, you can't ignore the politics. She, you know, is in a heavily Democratic county, and Democrats, of course, want to see Donald Trump and his allies held accountable for trying to overturn the 2020 election. And, you know, that desire, it's been harder to achieve than they had hoped. That being said, I think what you're seeing from the DA's office and you're seeing the January 6th committee that the U.S. House um, has underway kind of saying the same thing, that part of it is just they want this stuff on the record. They want the grand jury to investigate, take testimony, get get it documented what happened, um, regardless of the outcome. Um, of course, again, they would like people held accountable, but part of it is they think that the American people need to know the truth about what happened. And the January 6th committee, I've talked to members who said there are things we can't do that Fannie Willis can because she has, you know, hmm. criminal charges and criminal investigative tools that we don't have. So they see it as part of, you know, a bigger, a bigger need to really talk about the 2020 election and how it led up, you know, to January 6th. Tomorrow, why don't you give us a final word before we get to our break? Sure. Two things. First of all, yes, Fulton is pretty much as blue as you can get in Georgia. Something like 72 percent of residents here in Fulton voted for Joe Biden in 2020. But that still leaves almost 30 percent who voted for Donald Trump. And there are patches of North Fulton that are conservative or at least kind of hues of pink. And so your jury pool is not going to be entirely blue. And that can shift the course of the the investigation here behind closed doors. Um, You know, they they could help vet a lot of witnesses, you know, and and kind of get rid of some of the, you know, as Fonnie Willis tests out legal arguments, looks at witnesses who she might bring in front of a potential kind of criminal petite jury. Um, you know, that that can kind of help flesh it out. But it's also worth noting that that should this go to trial much down the line, a lot of things have to happen between now and then. It doesn't guarantee that there will be a favorable ruling, you know, in favor of char- of charging Donald Trump. And so I think that's important right. to note. It's also important to note that there is risk for Fonnie Willis in going after that, even though Fulton is as blue as can be. She's not up to uh, for reelection until 2024. But there are still plenty of people who think that this is a waste of taxpayer resources resources to be going after yeah. Donald Trump when, as Stephen says, there's plenty of people who are skeptical about whether charges can be brought um, when there's a giant COVID criminal backlog of something like 12,000 cases when, you know, there, you know, things like murders and other violent crimes are kind of at a higher rate than they have been in the past. So there is risk for her, but at the same time, there could be giant reward uh, to be the first prosecutor to charge a president of the, a former president of the United States. All right. Um, We'll obviously stay on top of that story, and I know you will, too, tomorrow. Let's take our final break of the show and come back with a little more on Political Rewind.
Stephen Fowler, you have a write-up at gpb.org about the Secretary of State, Republican Secretary of State's debate, uh, which was noteworthy, of course, because it was the first time that Brad Raffensperger and Jody Heiss uh, faced off against each other. Give us a little sense of how you saw that unfolding. Yeah, so Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's uh, main argument to Republican voters in the primary uh, centers around this push to ban non-citizens from voting, which is already a thing that happens, but it touches on the topic of immigration, which is a very popular motivating factor with the base. Uh, in regards to Jody Heiss, the Trump-backed primary challenger, Raffensperger spent much of this debate calling Jody Heiss a liar, saying that Jody Heiss didn't spend time when he was in Congress focusing on changing election laws, saying that Jody Heiss has spent the last 18 months lying about Georgia's election results and how Georgia's processes went, and that Jody Heiss does not know anything that he's talking about in regards to elections in Georgia. And, uh, and Jody Heiss, for his part, said Brad Raffensperger was a liar and that he was lying about a safe and secure election and he was lying and that he uh, conspired with Stacey Abrams to put drop boxes in and other just nonsense about the election. And so, uh, yeah, the Secretary of State's debate in 2022 was focused solely on 2020. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, Tia, the, the AJC poll of this race shows it pretty close. Uh, I Maybe within the margin of error, as I recall. Uh, but it's interesting that despite the backing of Donald Trump, Jody Heiss has, has not got a lead in this race. And, and, I'm, and in some ways, it may not be surprising. Brad Raffensperger's name is known by everybody in the state of Georgia as a result of 2020, whereas Jody Heiss has been a member of Congress representing one district. Right. And that was our latest AJC poll showed that Jody Heiss still um, did not have, you know, wide name recognition. And that poll was just among Republican voters. And yeah. there was about, I believe in that race, about a third of Republican voters were undecided. So um, that's one of the things benefiting Brad Raffensperger is people just don't know Jody Heiss. And what they do know is mainly centered around Donald Trump and the um, effort to overturn the 2020 election. Um, I think also we have to remember that Raffensperger and Governor Kemp, part of the reason why they've been able to kind of keep their support among conservatives is that, you know, yes, they stood up against Trump and that perhaps turned off, you know, the most the most rabid MAGA Republicans, but they've done a lot of other things that have, you know, helped shore up their support among conservative voters, things like pushing through Senate Bill 202 and criticizing yeah. Stacey Abrams and criticizing Democrats. So um, that's kind of insulated them a little bit. I'm sorry. Let me jump in for a minute because it's possible, quite possible, that that race will go to runoff. But tomorrow, I don't want to uh, ignore the fact that there's a Democratic Secretary of State's debate as well. Uh, five candidates on the Democratic side. B. Wynn, the state representative, has been the one who's gathered the most. She, I think she's far ahead in fundraising. Uh, she's got the most endorsements in that race. But, you know, you've got a couple of other well-known Georgians, uh, John Eaves, uh, former Fulton County Commissioner. Michael Owens was the chair of the Democratic Party in Cobb County. Um, so we've, we don't want to ignore the fact Democrats have a contested race for Secretary of State, too. 
Absolutely not. But what's so interesting about the Republican race and definitely the reason why reporters like us have really zeroed in on it is just the sheer kind of ideological differences within that party and kind of such starkly different views of how they viewed the 2020 elections. Whereas the Democrats, their contrast is more, you know, Democrats between the Republicans among themselves. There's less of a gap. Um, Emma, I, I, I think that one of the reasons I pointed out the Democratic side of this thing is that because there are no contests for U.S. senator or governor on the Democratic ballot, uh, and because Republican contests right now are so hotly contested, um, the Democrats are not getting much attention on down-ballot races like secretary of state, like school superintendent, like lieutenant governor. Um, And we don't even know what kind of turnout Democrats are going to have, given that those top races are unopposed. Absolutely. And, you know, there's always the the question of strategic voting. The, you know, we don't it's hard to say how many people do. But I have heard anecdotally of people pulling Democrats pulling a Republican primary ballot to try to influence that race. Who knows? But the main landmark uh, Democratic primary fight we have, obviously, is in the 7th Congressional District between Carolyn Bordeaux and and Lucy McBath. But outside of that, you're right, there's not much attention. And also, to be honest, I met a voter in the 7th District who only recently learned that McBath is in the race, too. So I don't know how much awareness there is uh, within the district um, among primary Democratic primary voters. Yeah, I think our goal on the show in the days ahead is to start paying some attention to these races that haven't gotten much focus, and and, and listeners have asked us to do that, and I think they're absolutely right. Um, by the way, speaking of the campaigns and the candidates, we're continuing debates at GPB uh, that are sponsored. We're broadcasting them, but they're produced by the Atlanta Press Club, and the uh, debates for U.S. Senate on the Republican side Uh, will be on GPB TV and radio tonight at 7 o'clock. Of course, Tricia Walker isn't going to be there, so all the other candidates in that uh, race will have the opportunity to shout at an empty podium. Um, That's it. We're out of time for today's show. Uh, uh, Emma Hurt, Tia Mitchell, Stephen Fowler, Tamar Hallerman, thank you so much for uh, taking on a really important and interesting conversation about this uh, possible, what we think may be the direction the Supreme Court is headed on abortion and the other subjects we talked about today. We're back, of course, with another Political Rewind tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>